1: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for these Lenten reflections being given by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. This week's reflections will be entitled Palm Sunday, uh, the Desecration of the Temple, along with the Last Supper and the Agony. And so we will be treated today by these two reflections by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And so I would ask you to pray with me now as we begin our program. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now entitled Palm Sunday, The Desecration of the Temple.
2: Remember that our blessed Lord is a hunted criminal. Orders had been given out that anyone who saw him was to report him to officials in order that he might be arrested. Incidentally, the police at an earlier period were sent out to arrest him and they refused to do so to the glory of the police. The Lord arrested them. They said, No, I never spoke as that man. The city is filled with people. Josephus, a Jewish historian, almost contemporaneous with our blessed Lord, tells us that there were about 2,700,000 people in Jerusalem for a great feast of the Passover, which is now about to take place. And everyone was watching for the Lord. What does he do? Should he hide? He sends Peter and John, very likely those two, But at any rate, two disciples into the city of Jerusalem. And he said, you will find a donkey and the foal tied together. Take the foal. If the owner says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it, and the Lord promised to return it. We never lose anything by giving to the Lord. They come into the city and they find this foal. Now remember, this is a donkey on which no one has ever ridden. Our blessed Lord mounts this young donkey. Why is it that the cowboys have never taken him as their patron saint? Can you imagine anyone riding for the first time on a wild young ass? And our Lord now boldly goes into the city of Jerusalem. The people see him. They throw their garments in front of him. Some they put upon the beast in order that he might ride more easily. They cut down the boughs of trees, carry palms and ferns, and precede him shouting, Hosanna to God in the highest. Praise to the Son of David. Hail the Lord. What a queer sight. Millions are claiming the Lord as he comes in on this infamous little beast. Conquerors never ride that way. They always ride on white horses, even in the book of Revelation. That's one of the symbols that is used at the coming of Christ, riding on the white horse. Remember the poem of Chesterton about the Lord mounted on that beast? He said, when fishes flew and forests walked and... Figs grew up on thorns. Some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. The monstrous head and aching cry and ears like errant wings. The devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient, crooked will, scourge, beat, deride me. I keep my secret still. Fool, far off wise and proud, I too had my day when there were shouts about my ears and palms beneath my feet. Well, the acclaim in honor of our blessed Lord was among some, just a few, the thought that maybe he's the one who will liberate us from the Romans. Because remember at that time the people were under the Romans just as, for example, the Poles, the Albanians, and Czechoslovakians and others are under the domination of Russia. And they were looking for a political leader. But the real reason was they praised him as Lord, because this was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. O daughter of Israel, see your king cometh to you, mount it on an ass. And that ancient prophecy they had recalled, and they meditated on it now. And they acclaimed him as the Lord. And some of the Pharisees nearby went to the apostles and they said, Can you not stop this noise? Why this acclaim? Our Lord said, pointing to the children, If these are quiet, even the stones will cry out. The Lord finishes the journey amidst Acclaim and shouting. Oh, the ephemeral character of popularity. How little it is worth. And the Lord does not think as they think. The Lord now leaves the city with his apostles. Goes to the opposite hill looks down upon the city, and what does he do? He weeps. Three times our Lord wept in his life. Once at the death of Lazarus, and once again that we hardly ever speak of in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then this time, he weeps over a city. And the apostles do not seem as they never seem in those days to enter into the full mystery of the Lord, and they cannot help but see the beauty of that temple on the other hill. Here It covered about 20 or 30 acres, And the front of it was all gold. In the morning sunlight, it was said that it was just like a flame. And they said to the Lord, look at those stones. Look at that building. And the Lord, with tears screaming down his eyes, said, Oh, oh, Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, How often would I have gathered thee to myself, as the hen gathers her chickens under her wing? And you would not, because you have not known the time of your visitation in the lives of all of us there are periods of grace periods of judgment periods of destruction our blessed Lord was weeping at the insensitivity of people who would not receive him as their Lord, their Savior, their King he was weeping because of the hardness of hearts and that weeping over the city He made the occasion of a prophecy. And this prophecy found in Luke and found in Matthew is so very compelling that I shall read to you the exact words of our blessed Lord. Now picture the scene. The apostles wondering why the Lord should shed tears. And the Lord said to them concerning that temple, This generation will not pass away, and there will not be left a stone upon a stone. They will lay siege works against you and press you to the ground. What our Lord foresaw was the coming of the Roman army, first under Vespasian and then under Titus. and Jerusalem falling as nothing has fallen since Satan fell from heaven. Sometimes pick up the work of Josephus, whom I mentioned before, called the Jewish Wars. He was in the city, when 750,000 were taken captive and about a million were killed. The destruction was so terrible some of the Roman soldiers ran out of Jerusalem when they saw the desolation. So our Lord was looking into the future, and then he made the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70, the rehearsal of the fall of the world. He spoke first of what would happen in the meantime between now, his time, and then. There would be a crescendo of evil. Do not believe those who say the world will get better and better. No. The world said, "Think you, when I come again, I shall find faith on earth. He said his own people will be persecuted. There will be a falling away. And this is the way he describes the interval between the fall of Jerusalem and the end. And the Lord said, Take care that no one mislead you, for many will come claiming my name and saying, I am the Messiah and many will be misled by them. The time is coming when you will hear the noise of battle near at hand and the news of battles far away. See that you are not alarmed. Such things are bound to happen. But the end is still to come, for nation will make war upon nation, kingdom upon kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many places. And with all these things, the birth pangs of a new age will begin. You will then be handed over to punishment and execution, And men of all nations will hate you for your allegiance to me. Many will fall away from the faith. They will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And as lawlessness spreads, as lawlessness spreads, men's love for one another will grow cold. But the man who holds on to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now he describes what John Donne has called the world's last night, which will come with great suddenness. As soon as the distress of those days is past, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from the skies, the celestial process powers will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign that heralds the Son of Man. All the peoples of the world will make lamentation, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And with a trumpet blast, he will send out his angel. And they will gather his chosen ones from the four winds and the farthest bounds of heaven on every side. And the apostle said, When? When? When will this happen? Our Lord said, Watch. 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 And the day after our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem, after he had spent the night in Bethany, he goes back into the city and he comes into the temple of Jerusalem. Now, the temple of Jerusalem was an enormous structure that was begun about 20 B.C. by Herod the Great and was now about completed. There were various courts surrounding the inner sanctum. There was the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, and then the court of the people. In the court of the Gentiles, animals were kept not by law, but by a practice which had recently sprung up. The five sons of Annas, who was one of the high priests of Jerusalem, had received the rights to serve the temple and to provide animals and doves and oxen and other things that were necessary for sacrifice. They brought them in to this court of the Gentiles, which was a profanation of the temple. Not only that, they began to traffic dishonestly. For example, every adorer had to pay a half a shekel tax, about 25 cents. But those who were at the receipt of custom in the temple, the priests, would not accept money unless it was a shekel. But there was Roman money, Grecian money, Babylonian money, all kinds of money floating about among the Jewish people. And they would charge a five cents extra tax and then pocket it. In addition to that, poor people would bring two doves. They would say, no, they're not fit for service. You have to buy our doves, charge a higher price. Same with the cattle. No. This oxen is not fit for sacrifice. Buy ours. Send yours away. Our blessed Lord comes into the temple and finds this condition. He releases the cages of the doves and lets the dove fly out, takes off some ropes from the necks of the cattle, and then overturns the table of the money changers. And he began to scourge them, to drive them out of the temple. And he said, my father's house is a house of prayer. You are making it a den of thieves. Well, this was the end of their business. Those who were corrupt in religion, therefore resented it. And they challenged our Lord. And they said, by what authority do you do this? What right have you? Our Lord said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Destroy this temple. Now, in the original Greek, in which the Gospels are written, there are two words for temple. One is naos. Naos meant the building, the structure itself, and its architecture. Hieron meant the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle. In the original of the Gospels, which word is used? Hieron, Holy of Holies. So our blessed Lord was saying to them when they asked, By what authority do you do this? He said, Destroy this Holy of Holies on Good Friday, and I will rebuild it on Sunday. That will be your sign. Our Lord left the temple Because the people had become irreverent. In religion, it is possible for irreverence to grow. There can be a want of the sense of holy. Holy means set apart. For example, Sunday is holy. It's set apart from the rest of the week. A church is holy. It is separate and distinct from other buildings. And therefore there is a fitting conduct for the presence of God which is being lost, which was lost in those days, which is lost in ours. Let's think of the condition, for example, which is present today when we view the way that people dress coming to Holy Mass. They would not go to the home of a visiting Duke the way they come to see the Lord God of hosts. It's easy to blame these few who trafficked in the temple. But what of the many of us who give up the signs of our dedication For example, the nuns who would give up the sacramental sign of their dedication or the priests who would give it up. All of these were condemned that particular day when our Lord drove them out of the temple. Then our Lord told them a story. Now this, I think, is one of the most pathetic parables that the blessed Lord ever told. Just imagine the condition. They resented everything that he did. In order to bring home to them the full mystery of what was happening, our blessed Lord said to them, there was once a king who owned a vineyard, and he rented it out, and he sent some of his servants to collect the rent. They beat the servants. He sent others. They killed them. Sent others. And they chased them away. And our blessed Lord then said, in telling the story, Well, at least they will reverence my only son. So he sends his only son. He's telling the story of the heavenly father sending himself to these people. They will reverence my son. And what did they do? They killed the son saying, we'll take over his inheritance. Well, will not the king then rent out his vineyard to other peoples? And they said, oh, God forbid! In other words, we will not be the vineyard of God from this point on. God forbid. I wonder. Now, this is not easy to be proven. I just wonder. Was the future St. Paul in that audience? Paul, who became the great persecutor of the Christians, was in Jerusalem. He studied under Gamaliel. And as he studied under Gamaliel, he certainly must have heard our blessed Lord. I wonder if he said, God forbid... Because St. Paul, in his writings afterwards, uses the expression 14 times, God forbid. It's only used one other time in all the scriptures. And that was when our blessed Lord told the story. I really believe that St. Paul was there and heard this touching parable. And our Lord knows that Judas has sold him and is about to betray him. And Judas, therefore, is laying plans. Our Lord now begins to thwart his plans. How does our Lord do it? He says to some of his disciples, Go into the city, and you will find a man with a water pot on his head. Ask him, where has he prepared the house for the Passover meal? The disciples went into the city. They found a man with a water pot on his head. Why did our Lord use that particular sign? Well, because men never carry water pots on their head. Women carry water pots on their head. That would be just like saying, go into the city and find a man who's carrying a pink parasol. So the disciples then found the man who had prepared the upper room. Judas, therefore, did not know where he was being led. Our Lord wanted the last meal alone with his apostles. And Judas would now have to come with him, and no one would know except the disciples who met the man with the water pot on the head. So they come into the upper room and prepare for the Passover meal. And with him now are his apostles. We are now prepared for the last supper of our blessed Lord. It is not a supper that will look to the past. It is a supper that will look to the future. Being God and not man, he prepares a memorial of his death and resurrection. He would not leave the memorial of his death to the chance recollection of men. He himself would determine the precise means by which his death would be recalled. And in the next conference, we will go to the Last Supper.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you've been enjoying our Lenten series with the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. You know, I think of his um, resume, the resources that we can draw from those many years of radio work, television, his lectures hundreds and hundreds of recordings and I want to thank my good friend Anthony at FultonSheen.com He's provided us with these quality recordings that we've been using on Radio Maria for over a year now and uh, I would recommend that you go to his site again www.FultonSheen.com and there for $27 you can purchase the entire Fulton Sheen Library which will be a spiritual treasury for years to come so Uh, We all need good resources, and by all means, uh, money well spent. And so again, that website, www.FultonSheen.com. And again, our thanks to Anthony for making us sound so good here on Radio Maria Canada. Uh, We're now going to go into our second reflection today, and it's entitled The Last Supper and the Agony. So I would encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time. The Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
2: When our blessed Lord gathered his apostles about him the night of the Last Supper, he said that he was anxious to eat that Passover meal with them. And he then began to wash the feet of his disciples. So he took a basin of water, Wash the feet of them all, Peter protested. Judas said nothing. But when our blessed Lord had finished the washing, he said to them, one of you is about to betray me. Ten said, Is it I, Lord? One said, Is it I, Master? One said, Who is it, Lord? Who is it? Ten said, Is it I, Lord? In the presence of Divinity, No one can be sure of his innocence. Judas said, Is it I, Master? We can call Jesus Lord only by the Spirit. We who believe in the divinity of Christ are so convinced by the Spirit which Christ sent us. Judas did not have the Spirit. So do our Blessed Lord. He was only a Master, like Buddha, Or Confucius, or any guru of the day. John, who was always close to the Lord, and who leaned on his breast the night of the Last Supper, was the one who said, Who is it? I believe, therefore, that the seating arrangement was a little bit different than what we see here in the painting of Leonardo da Vinci. Judas in this painting is the third on the right-hand side of our Lord with a money bag alongside of him. I think that Judas was on one side of our blessed Lord and John on the other. And Peter was next to John. We know where John was because he leaned on the breast of our Lord. Therefore, he had to be next to him. And I think that Judas, too, our Lord was anxious to save. And he said, sit here. And Peter, on the other side of John, because what happens now is a conversation. It is a whispering, actually. When our Lord said, one of you is about to betray me, Peter, who's always curious, impulsive, dashing in where others hesitated, Peter says to John, ask him who he is. Now, he could not have been next to our Lord, otherwise he would have had to lean in front of our Lord to speak to him. But if he was next to John, he could say, ask him who it is. And then John turns to our Lord and says, Who is it, Lord? Who is it? And our Lord said, It is the one to whom I will reach this bread after I have dipped it in the salt This was the way of toasting. You dip dip bread into a sauce and then gave it to the one you were toasting. The implication being that those who ate the same bread were one body. So our blessed Lord dipped the bread into the sauce and gave it to Judas. So Judas had to be immediately near him because the others did not know what was going on. When Judas left, they thought he'd gone out to either give money to the poor or else to prepare for a Passover meal. They had not; were not sure that he was the one who was to betray our blessed Lord. And when our Lord gave him that toast, he said to him, What you do, do quickly. And Judas went out. And it was night. It is always night when we leave the Lord. Our blessed Lord now prepares for his last meal. But it's more than a meal. It is a memorial of his death. He used bread and wine because these were the two substances which traditionally nourished man. And in therefore using bread and wine, he was equivalently using a symbol of ourselves. He now prepares the new Passover. The old Passover was to celebrate the Jews leaving bondage in Egypt and coming into the Promised Land. The new covenant... The new Exodus, the new Passover, is passing from sin to union with God through Christ. Our Lord then says, I'm going to give you a memorial of my death. He then symbolized for them his death by the separate consecration of his bread and wine. He said, first, this is my body over the wine. This is my blood. Not this symbolizes. This is. That separate consecration of bread and wine was like the tearing apart of blood from body. Which is the way he would die on the cross the next day. And then he said... Do this in memory of me. And every time we assist at Mass, we are watching the renewal of the death of Christ and incorporating our own death to his. That is the meaning of the Eucharist. There now comes something that is passed over very lightly, but I consider it as one of the most unusual verses in sacred scripture. Our Lord sang. The only recorded time in the life of our blessed Lord that he ever sang was the night he went out to his death. They leave the upper room, go down that hill, cross over the Kedron, go into the valley of Gethsemane. He takes with him three of his chosen disciples, three on whom he thought he could count. Peter, James, and John. They had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when his father inspired him to go on the journey to Calvary. And they are now invited to stay with him. And he says to them, watch and pray. Watch. Look out for the external environment. Pray. Keep in touch with heaven. Our Lord leaves the tree, walks into that garden of olives. It was strange that the place where he had his agony was where the olives were pressed, and he was to have his life pressed out of him. He goes into the garden, the gospel says, about as far as a man could throw a stone. Curious way to measure distance. And he undergoes now a struggle. The struggle is between being a sin bearer for us and doing the Father's will. He is loaded now mentally with the guilt of all of our sins. No young man of about 33 wants to die. On the other hand, he's under an imperative. Seven times he used the word must in obedience to the Father's will. So he prays, Father, let this cup Pass from me. This cup of bearing the burden of all the sinful hearts of the world. Let it pass. The word cup is used 21 times in scripture. We very often use the cup, my cup runneth over. Only three times does it mean joy. All the other times it means judgment. And the cup then meant judgment. Judgment. But he always added after praying that the cup would pass father not my will but thine be done he goes back 3 times and finds the disciples asleep worried men stay awake our lord then said Could you not stay awake one hour with me? Have you no sense of crisis? I did not ask the other nine, but you. Just one hour, that's all. A holy hour during my agony. He goes back into the garden and now takes upon himself all of the sins of the world. This is very difficult to describe. We can understand pain. But we do not have a deep and profound sense of guilt. Animals do not suffer as much as we do. Because animals do not add up their sufferings and do not project them into the future. We do. For example, if we are suffering... We may say, oh, I have suffered from this now for six months. And we bring that six months up to the present second. And then we look forward to the future and we say, well, it may be a year before I'm healed. And we bring that year back. That is one of the reasons why, when we visit the sick, we try to distract them. To break up that addition of the past, the present, and the future. Now, our blessed Lord is not dealing here so much with pain. He's dealing with guilt and all the sin of the world. So, he reaches back into the past for sin. All the sins that were ever committed in the past. Cain was there. Purple in the sheet of his brother's blood. The abominations of Sodom and Gomorrah were there. The coarseness of the pagans. The irreverence of his own people. And all of these sins he brought up to the present moment. And then he looked into the future. So all the sins that would ever rent Christ's mystical body. Sins too terrible to be mentioned. Sins too awful to be named. Sins committed in the country that made all nature blush. Sins committed in the city, in the city's fetid atmosphere of sin. Sins of the old who should have passed the age of sinning. Sins of the young for whom the heart of Christ was tenderly pierced. Sin, 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 north, south, east and west, Samson-like. He pulls this all upon him. And it's crushed so much for the weight of it that the blood begins to pour from his body, forming on the olive roots the first red rosary of redemption. There's a noise outside. Sleeping apostles are awakened. Judas comes with a band of about two hundred. He says to the brigands whom he brought with him, I will give you a sign. He whom I shall kiss that is he lay hold of him. Why does he give a sign? Kiss Because he thought our Lord would be afraid go back into the olive grove and he would have to go in there to hunt for him and his brigands would not know who he was and so he would give him a, a sign, a smack on the cheek when we lose the Lord we never know how he acts the Lord came forward and Judas reached out his arms and threw them around the Lord's neck and The Greek word in the gospel is katepheline. He smothered him with kisses. Divinity is so sacred it is always betrayed by some sign of affection. And our Lord said, friend, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Our blessed Lord is then led out of the Garden of Gethsemane under arrest. John follows rather closely. Peter follows far off. It is night. Probably midnight. One thing is certain. The law courts will not be open. They are not allowed to be open at night. But they will be open.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Well, my dear Radio Maria family, our time has come to an end this week, and so thank you for joining me for a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. You know, I never tire of praying to Archbishop Sheen for favors and for his intercession, and so I'd ask you to join me uh, as we close this program in praying for a spiritual favor through the intercession of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his prayerful intercession. And here I would ask you to kindly mention your request. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We look forward to seeing you again next time, and so until that time, may the good Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. And I thought I would end this program with one of my favorite songs by Josh Groban, and it's entitled, Thankful, because I am thankful for our good Lord's mercy upon us, and I'm thankful for you, our Radio Maria family, and how you have been so generous over the years. Take care, and God love you.
0: Been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria, Canada.